Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today's guest is Gabor Mate, physician, childhood trauma, and addiction expert. He's also the author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. So good morning, or afternoon, or whichever it is, wherever you are. It's morning, uh, just like you. I'm in this, on the West Coast. Wonderful. So, of course, uh, sort of a central aspect of not only being a physician in terms of your own life, but also an addiction specialist and someone who very deeply understands the nature not only of addiction, but of trauma. And one of the things I thought we would talk about, and of course, as you know from our prior interactions, uh, I have my own stories of uh, childhood trauma and also addiction. And I was just wondering if you could share uh, with our listeners this confused concept, I think, of quote-unquote a happy childhood. In my own experience, I've met actually very few people who've had a quote-unquote happy or perfect childhood. And maybe you could comment on that from your own experience. Sure. So um, from my perspective, Jim, and I think your experience bears that out, is that um, behind a lot of illness, whether of what we call mental illness or chronic physical illness, there are histories, people's lived experience. The diseases don't just come along spontaneously and randomly and out of the blue, but they reflect a person's uh, course in life, beginning in childhood. And particularly when it comes to addictions, there's all kinds of neurobiological and psychological reasons why addictions are an outcome of childhood trauma. And the, the first question I ask anybody about any addiction, I mean, let me ask you, like you had your own addictions, not what was wrong with it, what was right about it, what did it give you in the short term? Let me just ask you that. Sure. Well, from my own experience, it makes you feel safe and it helps with the pain. Yet, of course, you know, for me, the problem is that, and I think for most addicts, it's very transitory. Well, that's the whole point about addiction is that it's short-term benefit, long-term pain. So what I'm saying about addiction is that it's not a disease, it's actually a solution to a problem, the solution of emotional pain. So my mantra on our addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And if you understand why the pain, you don't look at just the brain, you look at the person's history. So you look at the childhood. So in your case, in your book, in The Magic Shop, you're very clear about your childhood trauma. Uh, the very dysfunctional family, a father that was unstable and hostile and so on. So well, every once in a while, and, and in my work with addictions, I've never met anybody who didn't have childhood trauma. And occasionally, to answer your question about happy childhoods, somebody will say, but I had a happy childhood and I still had an addiction. And that usually takes me about three minutes to talk, to, to say, okay, well, did you really have a happy childhood? Let's just look at it. And what actually happens is, is that it's not that they didn't have happiness in their childhood. It's that the, they forgot about the pain. In other words, how they handled their childhood pain is they repressed it. They didn't deal with it they, because it was too painful. Therefore, all they remember is the happiness. But you ask them a few questions. 
And it turns out that actually there was a lot of suffering in their childhoods as well. So the answer is, I've never met anybody with an addiction who really did have a childhood where there wasn't pain. And I'm not saying the parents didn't love you, they didn't try their best, but I'm saying that because parents often have their own issues. Invariably, as parents, as I did, we pass on our issues to our kids until we've worked them out ourselves. So a lot of these happy childhoods, despite all the parental love and, and even the external stability, there was a lot of emotional suffering. So there's no addiction is always an answer to suffering. If somebody didn't suffer, there's no reason to escape into addictions. It's interesting because one of the analogies I make sometimes is if you have a person who speaks two languages and they come to the emergency room in distress, they always revert to their primary language. Yes. And in, in some ways, that's the nature of these traumas. The first thing that soothed us, whatever that was, sticks with us. And when we're stressed, when we're anxious, when we're uh, hungry, then it suddenly pops up again. Because uh, frankly, I'm not sure if it ever leaves. Well, um, I think there might be some people who totally work it out, you know, but I don't make too many of those people, and I'm, so, I'm not certainly one of them. I mean, just this morning in our home, there was a huge kerfuffle. And really, it was over an issue that in itself could have just been talked about very calmly, but everybody got triggered, you know? And that triggering is old stuff. And so that, but but, question is not whether you have this stuff, because it's how you relate to it. So this old stuff, it may never quite leave us, but it doesn't have to control us the way it used to. So when it arises in the present, we can be much quicker in dealing with it and recognizing for what it is and not allowing us to succumb to its um, messages. And really, it's all about liberating ourselves from the past, isn't it? No, I think that's correct. And it's, you know, it's it, it would be, I think, naive and wrong to uh, separate us from our past because who we are today obviously uh, has great relationship to our past. But as you know, it's not the event per se, it's how you internalize the event and respond to that. And in some ways, I think it's also the nature of memory. Memory has neither bad nor good, it's simply an event. It is us who paint that event with emotion. And it's the emotion that comes back when you know, those memories are brought forth. And I think that, uh, for many people, causes some degree of suffering. Yes, and there's also there's something called state-specific memory, which is that when you're in a certain mood, a certain emotional state, all you remember is all the previous times you were in that state. So you can be in, in a marriage relationship for 50 years, but when you're in a bad mood, all you remember is what doesn't work about that relationship. And all, the, and all the happy times and all the joy and all the connection, it seems to have gone. You know, it's like having TV channels where if you're watching one channel, if, if you're watching the tragedy channel, you don't even remember that there's such a thing as the comedy channel, you know, and that's how the, just the brain works. No, that's right. I, I mean, again, uh, from my own experience with my wife, she has these little habits that most of the time only mildly annoy me. Yeah. 
<laughs> but other times, yeah. especially when I'm, you know, coming home and having an expectation, yeah. actually incredibly irritate me, which, you know, can often lead to an argument. One of the things I was going to ask you about, what your thoughts are, uh, there's a quote attributed to um, Viktor Frankl, and I'm sure you've probably heard of it. There is stimulus and response, and within that is a pause, and within that pause allows your freedom. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, if you will, can you train yourself to not be as reactive? Well, actually, it's interesting because Viktor Frankl is supposed to have done said that. And I read his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. It's not in there. No, it's not anywhere. <laughs> so he didn't actually say it. The person who said something very close to that is the American um that Rollo May. Oh, really? Oh, uh, now I thought it came from um, that sort of positive guy. Is it Dwyer? D-Y-E-R? I hadn't heard that from Rollo May. Wayne Dwyer, you mean? Wayne, D- Wayne Dwyer, yes, yes. Well, if you actually give me a moment, I'll actually find a quote for you because I, <laughs> in, in researching my next book, I did, um, I, I wanted to use that quote, you know, and it was uh, a surprise to me that, in fact, Frankl didn't say it, but I, I found that it was Rollo May who said it. He says, here's what he says. Human freedom involves our capacity to pause between stimulus and response, and in that pause, to choose the one response towards which we throw our weight. And he's, this is a psychologist, Rollo May. So it's Rollo May, and I found the citation in his book. So... Anyway, but it's the same point. So that there's a stimulus that happens, and then as there's a response to it, there's a bit of a gap between the stimulus. And, 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 and for most of us, it's a, that gap is a microsecond. If we can be aware of that gap, we can then choose how to respond. Now, this morning, I didn't choose it. I, there was an upset, and I just, you know. Had I been aware of that gap, I could have chosen, okay, I could have said, this bothers me, but I'm going to talk about it in a calm fashion. And he didn't do that. So really the freedom is in that gap. And yes, I think we can increase that gap, but I think it takes works. And I think it takes works of two kinds. One is we work on our trauma so we understand how the present stimulus is not the same as the past event that originally ingrained that reaction in us. And then we can do mindfulness work, which is specifically designed to make us more aware of our reactions. So we can work on it. And sometimes, you know what, we're going to lose it and that freedom is going to disappear. But then maybe we have the freedom to go back five minutes later or half an hour later and say, oh, look, this is what happened. And I don't need to stay attached to that reaction. No, I think uh, actually that's an excellent point. Getting back to my wife, (laughs) we will have these kerfuffles, (laughs) but usually in less than 24 hours, you know, we've talked about it, gone through it. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, we are frail, fragile human beings. And when we're able to sort of self-reflect and go back, actually, I think that is a very positive thing versus what many people do, of course, is let these things fester, which then create this uh, even more powerful 
emotion, and then of course has a negative uh, consequence. We were talking about childhood, and uh, I agree with you regarding um, quote unquote a happy childhood. And it's interesting because of my book, you know, people who I again presumed had a perfect childhood, at least from external appearances, actually shared with me they had very traumatic childhood. So the appearance of quote unquote calmness, the appearance of success actually are due to a construct of what people, they think people want to see versus authenticity. Yeah. Well, and also, of course, here's the thing. It's not like you can look at your childhood and compare it to some other childhood that you had. You had the childhood that you had, and we all think what happens to us is normal. This is just the way things are. The other problem here is that, and I'll, I'll come back to the authenticity in a moment, but here's what happens. You can hurt kids in two ways. You can do things that are bad. Like things happen in your family that, you know, in your book that were, just shouldn't happen to kids. You know, the family violence and the rage and all that, you know. But you don't have to have that to hurt kids because the other way you hurt kids is not by doing th things to them that shouldn't have happened, but by not giving them to them what they need. So people can be hurt just by their needs not having been met. If I deprive you of food or oxygen, obviously, I'd be hurting you, even though I didn't touch you physically or didn't hit you. And so human beings have certain emotional needs, certain, Stephen Porges said, neural expectancies for attunement and being seen and heard and accepted for who you are in having your emotions validated. Now, if your parents weren't able to do that because of their own limitations, not because they didn't love you, but secretly they couldn't give that to you, you'll be hurt. You may not remember that as bad things happening, and you say, nothing traumatic happened to me. But that doesn't mean you weren't wounded, which actually is the meaning of the word trauma. Trauma means a wound. So you can be wounded by bad things happening, but you can also be wounded by the good things not happening that should have happened. And people don't remember what didn't happen. They can remember what happened, but they can't remember what didn't happen. So typically I ask somebody, when you were sad or lonely as a kid, who did you speak to? The answer is universally nobody. And there's your happy childhood. Because what does it feel like for a child to be that alone with their feelings? No, well, it's a, a horrible form of isolation. And especially when you're a child, where you are searching for nurturing and caring and love, and it doesn't occur. And again, you internalize that as normal. And in fact, I think these types of traumas also have a profound effect on who we choose as a partner. Oftentimes, it's a codependent type of relationship. And we don't see that oftentimes we're in many ways, repeating the pattern of what we grew up in, because of course, that's all we know. Uh, just to mention, you said Stephen Porges. Steve's a great guy. And for those who may not know, uh, he's the founder of Polyvagal Theory and has written a number of books on how emotions affect your needs. In fact, his most recent book is Polyvagal Safety that I just arrived on my desk yesterday. And uh, he shows beautifully how our nervous system, particularly the vagus nerve, which 
is like a transducer of emotions to our viscera, including the heart and the lungs and the gut. And also it's a big conveyor of visceral information to the brain and how the essential condition for the proper functioning of all that is emotional safety and connection. You know, one of the popular, I'm not sure if it's a theory or a fact, but a lot has been said about ACEs or this adverse childhood experiences checklist, if you will. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so the adverse childhood experiences, which were based on studies originally done in California, showed that if you have any set of events happening in childhood or a combination of these events, then your risk of mental health conditions, addiction, autoimmune disease, and so on goes up significantly. You know, so these were physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, a, a divorce, violence in the family, a parent being mentally ill, neglect. For each of these adverse childhood experiences, the risk of adult disease, mental or physical, goes up. And they don't just add up, they multiply each other. So by the time a male child has six of them, his risk of being an injection using drug addict as an adult is 46 times as great. But what the other judges don't show is what didn't happen. So that, for example, the lack of understanding that we just talked about, where the child isn't understood and heard and seen, that's not included. Yet I think it's a significant influencer of adult dysfunction. Also not included are racism or poverty, which are in themselves huge risk factors for physical illness and mental illness. Like in Canada, for example, an indigenous woman has six times the rate of autoimmune disease than an average person. That's a fact of sexism and racism, but those are not included in the adverse childhood experiences. So they're illuminating those studies, very important studies, and they've been repeated elsewhere, always with the same results, so that the link between childhood suffering and adult disease is more than firmly established. What the adverse childhood experiences don't do, they don't explain the pathways but we know the pathways now through Stevens Polyvagal's work and through myriads of studies that link the immune system and the nervous system and the hormonal apparatus, the stress regulation, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the adrenal gland, and the stress hormones, all these pathways to emotions and the link between negative emotional experiences and physical disease and mental disease. So the other child experiences are an important clue and a big part of the evidence, but they don't cover the whole picture. It's interesting because I get into conversations with people regarding the prison system in the United States. And of course, as you know, we do not have a system which promotes rehabilitation. We have a system that is punitive and results in recidivism. Yet, that being said, my statement is there are very, very few evil people. What we have in prison is a group of people who've had significant childhood trauma, oftentimes around lack of nurturing or bonding. 
And it is those uh, situations that cause, you know, the outcome of them ending up in prison. And it's very unfortunate because, in my view, almost everyone is redeemable. But what do they need? They need to have one person who cares. And if you can have that one person, that changes everything. The criminal justice system is very well named. It is a criminal system. It's a criminal justice system. It's got nothing to do with justice. It hurts people, and who does it hurt? The most vulnerable. So again, if I can give the Canadian example, but it's the same in the US. In Canada, 30% of the prison inmates are indigenous people. Indigenous people make up 5% of the population. Now, why is that? They just happen to be the most traumatized segment of the Canadian population. So I think this news was reported internationally, I'm sure it was, but recently here in British Columbia, where I live uh, in Canada, westernmost province, they found hundreds of young bodies outside residential schools, bodies of children. In Saskatchewan, a few weeks later, they found another 1,500 of these young children buried unmarked graves near the residential schools where the government for over 100 years abducted native children forced them to give up their language. If a native kid as much as spoke their own language, I know one such case, she had a pin stuck in her tongue to dis dissuade her from speaking her own native tongue. Kids had their nails ripped out for speaking their own tribal language. And then they were physically abused and sexually abused and emotionally abused. And they died. Thousands of them died. And recently they started to find these bodies. Now, in those communities where generations were traumatized one after the other, then parents started abusing their own kids because that's what, that's what they learned. So there's a huge rate of addictions, mental illness, self-harm, suicide. It's a scandal. They keep talking about Canada as this great country. Well, great for who? These are all the pe also the people that end up in jail. It's the same in the U.S. And in terms of what you say about no, I don't think anybody's born evil, actually. And, it, and it, it's, it's all a response to life experience. I've visited lifers in jails in Canada, in the U.S., San Quentin, for example. And some of these people, they've had compassion. San Quentin is interesting because they have a lot of programs for the inmates. And one particular program, it's called the Prison Enneagram Project. And these people deeply work on their issues and they go through a transformation. I'm telling you, these people that have committed murder, are, when you actually get to know them and they actually deal with their stuff, they're just the most soft-hearted, open, lovable people you'll ever meet. And that's not only my experience. And, and yet, those are exceptions. Those programs are exceptions. For the most part, the prison system hurts these people, isolates them, traumatizes them, stresses them, and then it expects them to somehow get better. You know. Well, that's the horrible thing. Is as an example, I mean, spending twenty-three out of twenty-four hours in isolation is fundamentally inhuman. I, I mean, this is a horrible, horrible trauma for a social being. You're right. I mean, my own experience is exactly the same. If you just spend the time and respect their dignity and have empathy for them and give them the time to express themselves, my repeated experiences as it is yours is 
these are just kind, gentle people, yet they've been so traumatized. The system is not made up to care for these people. I had a conversation with the CEO of a private prison, and his statement was, I don't want to see the three strikes law removed because I need to keep my prison full. Now, what could be more horrible than a statement like that? It reflects the whole system, doesn't it? I mean, in, in a system that's designed for profit, that's the value. Profit is the value. And whatever supports human life, if it interferes with profit, is of no significance whatsoever. So therefore, we have companies that thrive on human death, like the tobacco companies, like the pharmaceutical companies very often, like companies that are dependent on fossil fuels that are destroying the earth, like companies that deliberately, I mean, this is not paranoid fantasy, they deliberately conspire to produce foods that are A, terrible for you, but B, highly addictive, because they actually research which combination of salt, sugar, and fat will most trigger the addictive centers in your brain. And, and as a result, people are dying of, of diabetes. But they don't care, you know, because... So this prison guy is just expressing very honestly, with refreshing honesty, to tell you the truth, the essence of this profit-driven system. Yeah, I mean, that, I think, is the crux of the matter. And obviously, maybe we're going slightly off topic, but I think you're right. I, I mean... When you look at these different industries, which you alluded to, there is no empathy or care about the system. It is all oriented towards profit. And it's, it's very disturbing because when is enough enough in terms of making money? And do you not see this? And it is horrible. You know, this issue you were alluding to related to these indigenous children. Actually, this concept, and I guess you could call it white man's burden, this perception of, of white Europe, feeling they have an obligation to teach or make people understand that their perception of the world is the best one, obviously has been horrible and has caused so much trauma and created a system which structurally is against these people. The very nature of so many actions are to take the rights away and the abilities of indigenous peoples or in America or in the United States, uh, Afro-Americans or Hispanics to, if you will, keep them in their place and not allow them to integrate into society. And it is a profound problem that until we open our eyes, we're not going to have a solution. Well, you know, when you're talking about the white man's burden, that was always just a justification for colonial exploitation is what it was because we have to feel good about what we do so we want to do bad things we have to create some good ideology that'll justify it that's just what people do i read histories of latin america the spanish came over and um they convert you know so they would convert these natives to catholicism but if people deliberately refuse the Christian ethic, then they can be killed and massacred. So literally, this has actually happened. I mean, it's hard to believe, but this happened. A Spanish ship would arrive on some native shore in Latin America or, you know, South America. In Spanish, they would read out 
the Pope's admonition that the natives should convert to Catholicism, which of course the, the, the natives couldn't understand because they didn't speak Spanish. And since they didn't immediately convert, they could be massacred. <laughs> All in the name of the loving Jesus, you know? It's such a perversion, you know? And, and, and of course, what it was really all about was the need to, not the need, but the drive to extract the resources and to uh, enroll the slave labor or the forced labor of these indigenous people. And uh, the same thing happened in North America. The United States was built on that. Canada was built on that. And, uh, and, and that would be okay if we recognize the history and the implications of that in the present, but we don't. We continue to punish these people and we continue to exclude them. The very concept of race, I didn't know this, but the very concept of race is a fairly modern concept. It, it, it arose with the drive for slavery. There always used to be differences. There even used to be slavery in ancient times, but there was no concept of race. The very concept of race itself is a modern construct. Oh, that's fascinating. The other thing I find interesting on the same topic is how many people wish to deny the teaching of truth in schools. Well, I, you know what? Recently, I, I spoke to some indigenous people from the States. There are eight or nine states now when they want to make it illegal to teach indigenous history. And this movement around the U.S., this... this, uh, this um, critical race theory, which has become this big bugaboo. Basically what it's all about is they don't want people to learn about the history of exploitation and slavery and oppression of black people. They don't want that taught in the schools. Which of course then perpetuates uh, racism and uh, denial of uh, reality, uh, unfortunately. Uh, one of the, we were talking about different causes of suffering uh, for children who grow up in these environments. and. I was just going to uh, share with you an experience I had uh, giving a talk uh, related to this, and it was interesting. There was a woman who raised her hand in her early 50s, and she uh, was a nurse. She'd gotten a PhD, ran a hospital, but she raised her hand, and she immediately started crying <laughs> because I was commenting on how, you know, we're talking about, you know, you can have abuse, you can have denial of care, which create these deep traumas. But I was talking about how words have meaning, and oftentimes we don't acknowledge that. And this woman shared that she was driven throughout her entire life to prove to her father, who had told her she would be nothing. Carrying this burden that drives you, now it may drive you, but the trauma you carry from that is absolutely horrible. And here, 40 years later, 50 years later, this still profoundly affects her versus saying, listen, you know, you have so much within, you, you're so talented, you know, you're going to do great things. Yeah. These uh, beliefs that, that we take on, as long as they drive us, we may do wonderful things in the world, but we will never be satiated. Because the sense of us being enough and being good enough, it can't come from the outside, not in adulthood. It has to be an internal realization. And as long as I'm trying to prove it from the outside and trying to get the world to give me the feedback that I'm good enough, it's never enough. It's, it just becomes addictive so that 
work and achievement itself can become addictive because like, as you mentioned about your addictions, they work temporarily to soothe your pain. This addiction to prove ourselves worthy only works temporarily. Then we have to go back into the fray again and keep doing it so that ultimately the solution is not to prove to the world that we're good enough and that we're not nothing, but to realize that we have nothing to prove. And that that is difficult to get to. No, in fact, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think many of us work decades, if not our entire lives, to get there and accept that as truth. You know, I can certainly, for myself, you know, I kept saying, well, if I do this, I'll be okay and be happy. If I do this, I'll be okay and be... And at each step of the way, as you move through what society defines as success or continuous success, you know, for myself, I, I was more unhappy than I had ever been because there was nothing at the top of the mountain that would uh, satiate my own emptiness. And in some ways, you know, you talk about your book in the realm of hungry ghosts, right? Well, this hungry ghost is this creature that can never get enough, basically. That's, we haunt our lives without ever getting enough. I'm curious about something. Like, you, you have this Compassion Institute, don't you, at Sanford, is it? Yes, yes. Does self-compassion come into it? Oh, absolutely. In fact, what I'm sure you're familiar with mindfulness, and I've had discussions with John Kabat-Zinn, who, of course, brought uh, this concept of mindfulness to the West. The fact that it doesn't explicitly use the term compassion, and I think, if you want to call it the whole shoot and shebang, isn't just the mindfulness part. It is explicitly discussing self-compassion, because what happens, of course, is that when you're constantly hypercritical and beat yourself up all the time, it's very hard then to look through at the rest of the world or people in the world with a lens uh, that is clean to see, you know, the true nature of reality, which is that everyone is suffering. You know, when you're beating yourself up, it's a very internally focused and, in fact, oftentimes very selfish thing. And, and, and again, getting back to addiction, it is the same thing. Addiction is a very lonely, self-absorbing activity that stops you from seeing reality and creates a whole construct in your mind that somehow people are preventing you from getting what you want and need. And at least for me, certainly, it was this idea that, well, I ha I'm a special person and I have special talents, and therefore it's okay for me to do this. Hmm. I certainly found that in my own addictive phase, um, my mind could find all kinds of justifications. The, uh, the addicted brain is really clever at uh, justifying what it does. This is where you talked about reflection. This is where self-reflection becomes so important. We need to really be able to question our own assumptions and the stories we tell ourselves and the justifications that our clever minds. And by the way, I don't blame the mind for doing that. It, it, it just, it's an automatic process, but we have to have some reflection about, well, is this story that I'm telling myself, whether it's a story that aggrandizes me or whether it's a story that diminishes me, can we get in a relationship with those stories? Can we actually look at them objectively? Can we get some distance from them? Because if we don't, they drive our lives.
So again, is you know to go back to what Roland May said is you know th there needs to be a gap between uh, what we do and how we act and how we react and our our impulses. Well, you know, I, I I think the other thing that so many of us don't recognize is that an interaction with an individual, where they're coming from oftentimes has nothing to do with us, but it is driven by their prior traumas, their insecurities, or their shame. This is why I talk about triggers a lot, because in the modern world, we often talk about trigger warnings and you triggered me. And I say to people, okay, look, well, that's an interesting phrase, triggered, because what it is, it's, it's, it's a metaphor, isn't it? I mean, where does it come from? From weaponry. If you look at a weapon, how big a part of the weapon is the trigger? It's a tiny little thing. What there is, is a whole mechanism for delivering ammunition. There's explosive material and there's ammunition. So when you get triggered, do you want to look at the external thing that triggered you? Or would you like to understand the ammunition and the explosive stuff that you're still carrying within? So rather than thinking that this other person did this to us, or that they caused us to react that way, we can actually look at, well, What's the explosive inside? That's a much richer inquiry uh, than simply blaming it on the external circumstances. No, that's correct. Uh, but as you uh, point out, and I think which is hard for people, is to get to that point of self-reflection and a understanding that your happiness is not an external event. It's hard for us to get there because as infants, our happiness was in fact dependent on somebody else. We could not experience joy and connection and safety without relationship. And um, especially when those needs are not met, we never do learn how to find the sources internally. It's interesting because the you want to find it internally but you only do so if you had the proper relationships to begin with. And if you didn't, you'd be keep seeking it from the outside all the time. And at some point, you know, I'm sure what happened for you, what happened for me, not that either of us are complete, but what happened for both of us, and as for a lot of people, is they realized that that search from the outside just is never going to yield the answer. That, that, that desperation to find peace and resolution is not going to come from the outside. And that's where you have to start reflecting internally. But it, but you have to get there. And usually it takes us a lot of suffering to get to that point. It's interesting that this term authenticity, which I think you were going to comment on more, and maybe you can comment on more, because if you want to call it radical openness, I think essentially results in you being okay with yourself, even though you have shame, even though you failed people, even though you've made huge mistakes. But the bottom line is that's the nature of being human. And we have to accept that aspect of ourself and not wish that somehow it would magically go away. Yes. And authenticity, when you actually look at the word, it comes from the word self, auto. So it's a matter of our relationship to ourselves. And 
knowing what we feel and being in touch with our feelings and be able to act on those feelings. That's authenticity. And authenticity also means if I can do all that, then I can look at my mistakes and I can look at uh, where I may have not been the best of myself, accept it, resolve to do better, but not beat myself up about it. And unfortunately, what happens to authenticity is that in childhood, when we're not accepted for who we are, when we're expected to be something other than who we really are, where we're, certain emotions of ours are not permitted to be expressed or experienced, then we suppress those parts of ourselves just to fit in with the environment. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to fit in. And it never feels quite right, or it feels right only temporarily. So we pay a huge price in the pain that we generate for ourselves. That suppression of the self also suppresses our immune system and our interferes with our cardiovascular apparatus. And we pay the price in gut disease. We talked about gut feelings. If we suppress our gut feelings, we're going to get all kinds of illnesses of the intestines, you know, and uh, I, I mean, I'm asserting that I can't prove it to you, but there's a lot of literature indicating why that should be the case. Really, the long and short of it is that our emotional and spiritual lives can't be separated from our physiology. And as, as physicians, you and I, we're trained to deal with the physiology, but we're never given the connections between the emotions and life experience and our spiritual existence and our physiology. So we're always, we're always fiddling with the biology in isolation from the other aspects of being a human being. Until something happens, like happened for you, like happened for me, where we start getting a larger picture. But it doesn't form part of medical education to this day. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I was having a discussion with the dean of a significant medical school, which I won't name, <laughs> but uh, uh, I was talking about teaching compassion and self-compassion. And he said, Jim, the student's curriculum is already too full to focus on compassion, which, <laughs> you know, is a horrible, horrible statement because fundamentally, and I, from my own experience, my successes, and even though I have a very technical job in medicine, being a neurosurgeon, there are just as many successes related to treating people with dignity and kindness than uh, all the neurosurgery and technical equipment that I have. Well, listen, so I was having a conversation with a, a classmate of mine um, from medical school two days ago, and we were having the same conversation that there's no time, there's you know no time to teach this stuff. So there's a few things. So I asked him, do you remember the six branches of, or projections of the habineural interpedicular fasciculus? Now, do you, Jim, as a neurosurgeon, know what those six projections are? Uh, yes. Uh, okay, you see, you do. But why the hell did I have to learn them? You know, <laughs> I don't remember what they are. And, and, and as a medical student, I had to learn them and, 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 and memorize them. But there was no time to, you know, I don't ever use them. I don't even know what the habineural interpedicular fasciculus is anymore, nor do I need to know it, you know. And But yet I spent time learning it. And... But there was no time for compassion. So let me tell you about medical students. So what I'm saying is we learn all this useless stuff, but we don't learn what's essential. Medical students, studies have shown that the highest degree of empathy of medical students occurs just, just when they start their training. After that, it's downhill in terms of compassion and empathy. 
number one. Number two, if you look at telomeres, telomeres being these chromosomal structures that are necessary for health, I won't go into detail about them, but the shorter they are, the less healthy we are and the more aged we are biologically. Medical students' telomeres shorten more rapidly than other people their age. Now, what does that have to do with? It has to do with the stress they're under. And what I'm saying is that you take idealistic young people and you subject them to medical training, they get stressed and they lose empathy. And these are the doctors that we're, that we're producing because of medical education. And we teach them all kinds of stuff they never need to use. And the essential things about human dignity that you talk about, compassion, awareness, seeing the whole person, those things we don't have time for. Yeah, there's a wonderful book by, uh, and I'm sure you probably read it, called The Telomere Effect by Elizabeth Blackburn, who won a Nobel laureate. Yeah. But uh, I tell people, actually, that I'm probably the lowest paid neurosurgeon. And what I mean by that is... You spend time with people. <laughs> exactly. My job is not to do neurosurgery. My job is to be a doctor. I do not type into the computer while I'm with somebody. I, you know, lean towards them, touch them, uh, give them the sense that I have all the time in the world. That's what people want. And in fact, I believe that when you do that, and I think evidence shows it, the very nature of going to a doctor is stressful. And then when you do that, especially prior to surgery, it results in a calmness which decreases needs. Yeah, decreased complication, decreases use of narcotic analgesics, decreases readmission rates, and it's profound. Versus, I can't even tell you the number of patients who've come to me, and they'll for a second opinion because they're scheduled for surgery or told they need surgery, and they'll say, "Well, I went into the room. The nurse practitioner was there. She talked to me for about ten minutes. Then she threw the X-rays up. The doctor came in, pointed to the X-rays, and told me I needed surgery." And what is that? I mean, it's it's that to me is not medicine. And uh, I'll give you a very quick story. I had a woman come in and in her early to mid twenties, somewhat overweight, somewhat disheveled, and I started talking to her. She was tentatively scheduled for surgery on her back. Uh, you know, I looked at the films and there was a minimal bulge there that could not explain. Plus, she had uh, dyspruenia, which, you know, of course, is pain with sex. And I noticed uh, as I was talking to her that she had these cuts on her wrists and uh, she had been cutting. So I went into a discussion of her childhood. Sexually abused. Yes, by the stepfather. Mother got divorced when she was 11, of course. Uh, remarried, and then, yeah, which, of course, is obvious to somebody yeah. who cares. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what I did was I told her she didn't, uh, and we started talking about this, and, of course, she burst into tears, and I hold her for a while. I arranged for her to see an adolescent psychiatrist, comes back in six months later. She's lost like 60 pounds. No pain. Smile on her face, no pain, yeah. and she's dressed well. And, again... You know, if you're if you're attuned, if you care, if you can see, that is what people need. When it comes to chronic pain, uh, and this is something again I looked at recently, people often get, as you know, at a certain age, a whole lot of people will source certain changes in their spines. You know, bulges of discs and degeneration of you know the uh, vertebrae and so on. 
And most of those people won't have pain. But some people will have pain. And then they go to see a doctor who looks at the x-ray and says, here's the reason for your pain. But really, they so they under, end up operating on people's x-rays rather than on human beings. And if you actually talk to human beings, now I've had back surgery. I had surgery for a bulging disc, and believe me, it really helped. You know, because the, the, the disc had broken off, um, pressing on a certain nerve root. I had pain in my leg. I put up with it for six months. I said, enough. I had the surgery. By next day, I didn't have any pain. So I'm not here to argue against surgery in principle. But too often, too often, doctors assume that the pain is related to x-ray findings when actually the pain is related to emotional factors such as you divined with this particular client. And just by talking with them and hearing them and, and having them understand, the pain goes away and no need for the surgery at all in, in, in many, 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 many cases. No, I think that's right. You know, there's a friend of mine who was a... Um or is uh, an orthopedic spine surgeon, but he ended up having a chronic pain problem, which he couldn't solve, which led to a lot of negative consequences. But then he found, he got to the root of it, which was as we were talking about, his name is David Hanscom, and he's written a book called Back in Control and has a website. Uh, but he actually, interestingly enough, works with Steve Porges and has a, a series on... Uh, uh, chronic pain. And, and in fact, he had a summit, which I spoke at in relationship to compassion and, and self-compassion. Yes. And um, you're probably familiar with the name of John Sarno. Uh, Sarno was a rehab specialist, a physician, and, and he's, he saved thousands of people from surgery just, just by talking with them and, and making them understand the relationship between emotions and pain. So, and the question is, why don't we have time for this in medical school? Exactly. That is exactly right. Uh, uh, and again, in some ways, it seems completely obvious, right? We know, as an example, what causes drug addiction or different types of addictions. We know the reality of why people are in prison. We know the reality that uh, the private prison system is not a good system. And we know that as you further take away from the social safety net, you're not really saving any money, which is the narrative that there are all these slackers and losers who are taking advantage of the system, when in reality, that's not true at all. And what's extraordinary is, though, you know, by not offering actually, uh, you know, a child care, by not offering health care, by not offering uh, support services for frankly, government-created addiction, you just continue the cycle of horrible trauma for people, which then leads to the reality that we have no problem paying $35,000, $50,000 a year to incarcerate one person. You mentioned childcare. Um, <clears throat> when you look at how human beings evolved, children need to be with their parents for years. In the U.S., 25% of women have to go back to work within eight weeks of giving birth. That's a trauma to the child. And then they're not provided with decent childcare. Then, then you're looking at why we have this epidemic of childhood mental health conditions, such as ADHD and anxiety and depression and self-cutting and oppositionality and so on. It's because we're not providing children 
with the proper environments it's because we're into we're not supporting the proper parent-child relationships but again you know these are not exactly mistakes because they work for some people because to have the social safety net eroded or, or cut means people have to work for lower wages somebody's going to profit of that so we might say that it costs society more money that's true but the people that run society it makes them money so that so, so that these things aren't exactly accidental like as you know i've, I've just complete i'm just about to complete writing my next book which can be published next year and as I mentioned to you, you're actually quoted in it, in the healing chapters on compassion. And the book is entitled The Myth of Normal, uh, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And that's the point I'm making. This is a toxic culture. Its values, its organization. It, we couldn't design a system more prone to cause illness and unhappiness in people than the system we have. So you look at a country like the US, your country, the richest country in the world, by far the most rich country in the history of the universe, and certainly the most economically and militarily powerful. 50% of, 70% of adults have some chronic health conditions. And it's not like 50%, at least, I think on at least one medication. It's unbelievable. And, and 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 it's not accidental. Like you could say, it's a it's a, it's not an accident. It's not a bug in the system. It's a feature of the system. No, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, um, as an example, we have created a system of corporate welfare, and what I mean by that is, you look at a company like Walmart, which pays typically minimum wage and doesn't provide health insurance. Yet, if you look at the number of people employed they actually qualify for welfare or they may not have insurance and then end up in the emergency system where it's interesting, it, it, a lot of statements are made, well, people don't have access to healthcare in the United States. No, they do have access because by law, you cannot not treat someone if it's an emergency. But of course, why should it have to end up being an emergency where the care of these patients is exponentially greater than for just having healthcare. And again, for corporations who, and you alluded to this, of course, you know, we have a minimum wage, not a living wage. And if our minimum wage just kept up with inflation, the average wage should be about $22 or $24. And you're right, it would probably on some level affect business. But why did it not affect business way back then when it was $7.25? and quote-unquote was significant, uh, yet everything has increased cost and we can't give people a, a, a living wage. And of course, then this leads to the part that if you have a minimum wage and you can't possibly even care for yourself, if two people are working at a minimum wage, of course, people want to have a life, which translates oftentimes into a family and children, yet you cannot afford to give them proper care. So who do they end up in care with? Now, it can be often grandparents, but frequently it's not. And it's then- frequently, frequently it's low paid workers who are, yes. themselves, who are themselves very stressed. Yeah, so yeah. it's this horrible cycle. And I would say it is not a virtuous cycle in any way. 
And in fact, it is as you alluded to. These individuals are only thinking of themselves, and they have constructed a system where they extract from humans. And uh, as you know, even during the pandemic, I think $1.7 trillion in profit was created, which went into the pockets of the top 1%. Well, there was an article even just yesterday about how exponentially the top layers are trillions of dollars richer, even as people are being impoverished during the COVID uh, crisis. So it's Look, as, as physicians, what, what interests us, I think, is, well, the, these political and economic facts are, are, are crucial to everybody, but what people don't realize is the health impacts, is that is that the way the society is structured, the powerlessness of most people, the extreme inequality, these have health impacts. They impact the physiological and mental health of millions of people and in the, are in the world billions of people. So we're not talking politics here. We're not talking economics here. We're talking about human health. That's exactly uh, correct. But it translates into so many other areas. As an example, uh, you look at the type of food that most people in poverty eat. It's absolutely horrible. Yeah. And it's very much constructed to addict them to processed foods that are cheap to create. It's unfortunately uh, the very nature of the system that has been created in the West. Do you know uh, Do you know Rob Lustig? Uh, no. Rob Lustig is a California endocrinologist. He wrote a book called The Hacking of the American Mind. And he's an endocrinologist. And um, he says he's a children's endocrinologist. And he said it's the most depressing profession there is. Because he deals with the metabolic diseases of children, diabetes and, and hormonal problems. Because of the food that kids are eating, the hacking of the mind, meaning the corporate takeover of the American mind and the selling of junk foods and so on, kids are dying they, or, or they're getting sick. They're developing heart disease long before their time. So he says that his profession used to be very satisfying. He says, no, it's the saddest profession there is, he says. He says amongst physicians, he claims, that endocrinologists are the most stressed because of the way that culture is affecting people's physiology. No, I think that's right. I, I think that, unfortunately, as an example, now probably you and I have maybe a little bit more access, but for the average person, they do not have access to the politician who represents them. Yet, if you are a huge funder or donor, you make up a phone call and you sit down and have a conversation and in fact, what has been demonstrated repeatedly is they will even write the legislation for you. And this is, of course, inherently unfair and comes on the backs of those who are being maximally used for extractive reasons uh, for profit. There's a wonderful quote by Tolstoy, which I think relates to this system. And I often use it in the context of discussing Davos. But you know, the people with the most power make the rules. And uh, the quote is, there's a man on your back choking you. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but at no time does he offer to get off your back and stop choking you. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So when I was working with a, a highly drug-addicted drug clientele in Vancouver, these people were dependent on heroin and cocaine and crystal meth and nicotine and marijuana and alcohol and so on. 
and they had HIV, they had hepatitis C, they had all the complications of severe drug use, all had been severely traumatized. If one of them sold an ounce of cocaine in the street to support his habit, which is arbitrarily illegal, that's a whole other conversation, he'd face jail time. But if a corporation sells junk food that kills and makes sick millions of people, they're just lauded as great businessmen. The discrepancy between the harm, you can't even compare it. Who's the greater criminal? My patient who's desperate to, to, to sell an ounce of cocaine so that he can buy some more drugs for himself, which we as a society make illegal for him, or that guy in the corporate boardroom who consciously sells and manufactures and concocts products that he knows is going to kill people. It boggles the mind. That's what I was going to say, yeah. No, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, one other observation I've had is that the people that do this have actually no compunction about doing it. I was talking to a guy who uh, I'm sure you're familiar with these things called payday loans. Yeah. Yeah. So what you do is you get vulnerable people, you give them a short-term loan, which has outrageous interest. And of course, then you make a significant profit to, of course, the disadvantage of the poor. And this guy was telling me, uh, you know, what a great business this is and, you know, how he's made so much money. And I just looked at him. I said, do you understand what you're doing to people when you're doing this? I, I mean, do you have no shame about what you're doing here? And, and it's interesting because he said, you're jealous because I make more money than you. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm appalled. <laughs> you know, it's just like I've had people say to me regarding our past president, look at my 401k, it's doing great. And I would say, so you support a fundamental fascist, racist, womanizer who represents no value other than to cheat, and you're happy with him because he makes your 401k double in value. I said, I would love to see my 401k decrease in value by 50% if I can help people. Well, again, that has to do with this system's assumptions about human nature and human beings and the fundamental sales pitch in this culture is that people are selfish and acquisitive and aggressive and individualistic and competitive, which is totally contrary to what human beings actually are in terms of what our needs are. Our needs are for connection, for acceptance, for caring for each other, for compassion. That's actually human nature when you get down to it. When those needs are not met, then we become aggressive and competitive, individualistic. When those needs are frustrated. And, 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 but this society elevates those manufactured traits of selfishness into what they believe we actually are as beings. The system kind of creates an ideology about human beings that justifies the way it operates. And, and so that somebody who's not doesn't operate like that, you just, you know, you can't really mean it. You got to be just jealous, you know. It, exactly. Well, uh, but I think there's another problem here is that we've created a society that has been told a false narrative. Yeah. And the false narrative to me is one of conspicuous consumption makes you happy. 
And we worship people who have money and who have wealth and who have prominence with the false belief that they have done something special or deserve it, even and even though they may have cheated for it. And then you sit there and they, you look at them and go, God, look, they're in their private jet, or they're doing this, or they're doing that. They must be so happy. And of course, the problem is that subset of people, though, have this emptiness inside them, relating back to this hungry ghost, that they believe, because of the nature of the narrative we've told society, that they're special because they have so much, and they love to show it off because people admiring them they keep it's like stuffing food that has no calories and they therefore they have to keep doing it more and more well you know recently i interviewed um a number of very well-known culture stars you know uh jamie lee curtis the actor and uh, ashley judd another actor and, and female activist you know me too activist a young woman called mona Haydar who you might not know, but she, you know because our generation doesn't. But she's a huge rapper, and she's got millions of followers, and she raps in a hijab. I spoke to great pop stars like a woman called Sia, who's he's the biggest pop star in the world, and and another woman called Jewel, who's another great singer and pop star. And the, and these are all women who are considered beautiful women, you know, by the cultural standards. They're successful, they made a lot of money, the envy of the world, and they'll tell you how hollow it all is. How it doesn't give you, and you know I know this, like, you know, you're a neurosurgeon, which is almost like at the, you're, you're as high as you can get in, in medical esteem, you know? Um, but me just, a, you know, as a physician, you know, I'm pretty high up on the social scale, you know? Did it ever make us happy? All the money we ever made, did it ever make us happy? You know, no, I'm not saying poor me. But I'm saying is that, like you, I'd be happily be taxed double the amount I'm being taxed right now if it would lead to a better world. I'd be, I'd, I'd greet that joyfully, you know? And why? Because that connection and that compassion and that belonging to the whole is much more important to human beings than any personal uh, acquisition. No, you know, I think that's right. And, and you know, I don't, I'm not trying to say that working hard and living well is a bad thing per se, but when you think that that creates happiness, it's, it's wrong. Can you enjoy it? Absolutely. Does it create happiness? Absolutely not. And the other problem it is, I think, is that I think you do the same thing is we look down and say, see all the suffering and, and how the system is unfair, et cetera, et cetera. But so many of these very wealthy people are looking up at about what they don't have, uh, not that the blessing that they do have. Well, um, two things come to mind. One is that Tim Kasser is a psychologist in the US whose work is quite well known, and he studied materialistic values. And he said that the more you pursue materialistic values, the unhappier you are. That's what he found in his studies. And uh, your colleague at Samford, Robert Sapolsky, uh, he said that it's bad for people to health to keep having their faces rubbed into what they don't have. So as a society that always compares people based on acquisition and achievement and attainment, 
actually makes people sick just by the fact of that constant comparison that we're forced into in engaging our success versus other people's. And when you have large numbers of people that are systemically kept away from success because of the factors that you and I talked about, we're creating ill health just by that fact of rubbing people into their inequality and their lack of achievement, as if those are the most important values. Well, and again, uh, as we also alluded to, we have created a system, though, that supports that narrative. And again, it destroys people's health, it destroys people's lives, and fundamentally, it makes people unhappy. Well, on <laughs> all of those notes, maybe you can tell me your final thoughts sort of about what is it that each of us can do in our own way to help others? Well, look, when I look at your book, Into the Magic Shop, and I look at the books that I've written, including the new one, what, what did you and I do in those books? We actually took our life experience, both in terms of individual experience, but also what we've been able to observe as physicians. And um, we came to some, I believe, a deep truths, and we expressed them. And when you ask yourself, let's say you had found out these truths about yourself and about society and about people and about health, but you hadn't expressed them, how frustrated you'd be. And the same thing is true for me. So what I can say to people is that you may not be a neurosurgeon, you may not be a doctor, you may not be a writer, but it's so important for you to know your own personal truth and to express it. And everybody can do that. At whatever level they're functioning at, whatever platform they have, whatever social circuit they're a part of, whatever their personal relationships, for God's sakes, keep looking for that truth that's within yourself and keep expressing it. That's the healthiest thing you can do. So if you have a final thought, that'd be it. Yeah, and I would also say that Every one of us has the ability to make uh, at least one person's life better every day. And that can just sometimes be saying uh, hello. Oh, yeah. Well, Gabor, it's been a, a real joy and a pleasure to uh, uh, share a little bit of time with you. And uh, we jumped around to a lot of different areas, but I think all of them are very much related. Because it is all related. That's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>